0: Do you suppose that the kinds of attacks and assaults that the evangelical world has known in recent decades is something new? Do you think that those things that have weakened the church have never been known before? In Ezra chapter 4, God's people are confronted with the very same attacks and discouragements that Satan is still using today against the Church of Christ. It shouldn't be a surprise that this is the case. But it still comes across as remarkable, well, it does to me at least, that exactly the same kinds of threats are brought to bear upon us today as the returning exiles experienced in Jerusalem two and a half thousand years ago. They're not the only threats and dangers which they faced nor the ones that we will face. But they are difficulties that we share in common with them. In Ezra's day, this opposition put on hold for years at a time the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls and the rest of the city. And With these warnings laid open before us in the Bible, We have them there so that we can remain alert and vigilant, so that with the Lord's help, we will remain steadfast in continuing to always play our part in the building of Christ's church. He ultimately, of course, is the builder. But he uses the likes of you and I in his purposes, in building up his people and his church. And in this chapter, Ezra brings a summary of the things that happened across a period of about 40 years. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4 refer to that immediate period that we've been considering when the first of the exiles returned to the city of Jerusalem. And there they're involved in rebuilding the temple. And at this point, they've got the foundations laid. Then at verse 6, Ezra jumps, jumps forward To a time when Ahasuerus was the king. Now, that name should ring a bell. We've not long been going through the story of Esther with the children. And there was a king there whose name was Ahasuerus. Same king. That's when the story of Esther took place. And then some time goes by, and then there's another name, Xerxes. Uh, Sorry, Xerxes was a a name that was also used for Ahasuerus. So sometimes you'll come across those two different names, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, same person. And then Artaxerxes, verse 7, Ezra describes further actions that are taken against the people. Now, on both occasions, uh, things were written. We're not told what was written in verse 6 regarding Ahasuerus but when it comes to the letter written to Artaxerxes sometime later in verse 7 Ezra records the detail of what was said and how that actually worked out and he describes all of these things he's he's referring from verse 7 To a time when the temple rebuild has been done, but now they're working on the walls of the city and seeking to establish the city itself. And that's mentioned in verse 12. So he's actually covering a period of time in this chapter. His concern here is not just to give a kind of a chronological year by year account of what happened, but he's covering a theme in this chapter. And he's bringing us a summary of the main struggles that the people had that caused them so much discouragement and on a number of occasions actually caused them to stop building altogether and just give up and go home. And it's helpful for us to have all of these things recorded in this single section so that we can scan across the page and see all the different ploys that were brought to bear against God's people. All in one place. And it's helpful because we will experience, we do experience, we have experienced, we are experiencing the same forms of opposition and difficulty that are taking place here. So let's have a look at them. The first difficulty that the people are faced with is people who come alongside them And want to enter into false fellowship. False fellowship. In the opening verses. The people who already live in Judah come to the Jews. Asking if they can join with them. And work with them. Ezra's writing after the event. So he's able to identify them from the outset. As adversaries. Enemies. But he describes how they came along pretending to be in fellowship with them. We seek your God as you do. These enemies want to try and assimilate themselves into the group of the exiles. Once in, they can start to have their own influence and seek their own agenda amongst the people now these people described as the adversaries the people who already lived in the area of Judah when the exiles went back these people are from various backgrounds from various cultures they've been resettled in this land by the king of Assyria the Assyrians previously had come into this area especially in the northern part of Israel and dominated it and overthrown it But the king of Assyria has resettled people back into this part of the world. Now, some of them may well have had some Jewish ancestry. Some of them who lived in this area are the predecessors of the Samaritans, who we read about in the New Testament, who did have some Jewish background and were provided with some vital information about these people back in 2 Kings and chapter 17, because we discover there the policy of uh, the king of Assyria, in sending these people back. So in 2 Kings 17, at verse 24, we read this, that the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sephavim and placed them in the cities of Samaria, it's the northern part of Israel, instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent lions among them. And indeed, they're killing them because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded saying send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But they're a right mix of people. And a little later on at verse 32 we read this. So they feared the Lord And from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day they continue practicing the former rituals... They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord God had commanded. And so you see, you've got this group of people who are just got this mishmash of religions, a little bit of everything, all thrown together. They don't truly know and love the Lord. They don't truly worship Him and follow Him. Their claim of verse 2 is false. They're not seeking the Lord God of Israel. They have no desire to know him and love him and follow him and serve him. Actually what you have here is an early kind of ecumenism. We all worship the same God. So why should there be any distinction between us? They're saying. But. These people do not worship the one true God. And they don't worship him alone. They name him, but their knowledge of him is false. Their worship of him is riddled with paganism. And on that basis, their offer to join with them must be rejected. And we see that this primarily challenges the leaders of the people, verse 2. And they must take responsibility for all the rest. (coughs) These adversaries are seeking false fellowship. And it's just as much of an issue for us today. Today you'll hear people say, we all love the same Jesus, so why can't we just get on and work together? Sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it, in many ways? But there's a problem. And it's a big problem. Very often the gospel they proclaim and the Jesus they describe and the faith that they follow too often is not the gospel and is not the Jesus and is not the faith of the Bible. They use some of the same language but it's not the same. Therefore there can only ever be one answer. We cannot stand alongside you, and we cannot permit you to stand alongside us because it's not the same. Frequently, you might hear this being described as being narrow minded. You're too exclusivist. But they're not seeking to build as we seek to build. And I can assure you, if we attempted to build with them, all manner of difficulties would soon emerge. And as in Zerubbabel's day, the onus lies upon the spiritual leaders, which for us is church elders. They must make these kinds of choices and decisions. There is never a week goes by when I don't get either an envelope through my front door or an email from someone I've never heard of in my inbox with all kinds of invitations for us to join with all kinds of different groups and events, some of them local, some of them somewhere else in the country, some of them on the other side of the world. But you remain blissfully unaware of the vast majority of them because there will be far too much potential for harm and confusion amongst all of you if I accepted those invitations. Because they're not the same as us. They use some of the same words, some of the same vocabulary, but they're not the same. This is one reason why church membership is so important. Because you cannot just accept at face value anyone's claim to be one of us when they come amongst us and just allow them to join in and play a part in church life on week two. You can't. If they would join with us, their testimony... And their life has to come under some degree of scrutiny. Are they really one of us? Or are they not? As much as we are able to tell. Are they going to be a good influence? Are they going to help us build up? Or actually, in six months' time... are we going to find ourselves in the biggest hole that we regret we got ourselves in and wondering how we're going to get out of it? Because we cannot permit ourselves to go down the path of false fellowship and we have to take every due diligence that we can and it's tricky sometimes. Now, we don't have to agree precisely on every single point of doctrine, but there has to be a minimum degree of common ground amongst us, doesn't there? Which at least is that we believe the same gospel, we're trusting in the same Jesus, we're following the same faith, we have the same view and understanding of the scriptures. So many churches have come to ruin because people have been allowed to join in without the eldership paying due diligence from the outset to what's happening right under their noses. Do you remember what we read in our studies in 2 Timothy chapter 3 earlier this year? Know this, in the last days, that's the whole gospel age, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Love is a pleasure. You sometimes wish Paul would get to the point and say what he means, wouldn't you? Love is a pleasure rather than love of God. Having a form of godliness. Ah. Having a form of godliness. But denying its power from such people turn away. Of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of the gullible. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. How many churches have drifted away from their biblical roots? And the origin is often because of those who've come in and joined them. And simply been accepted with no exercise of discernment by those who were their leaders. In a very large measure, this is why we have church membership. It's not the only reason, but it's a very big part of it. This is why we do all we can to avoid false fellowship. Because through the long centuries, false fellowship has been the downfall of many, and still is today. And we notice that these attacks test Church leaders, so you need to pray for them. Much wisdom, much understanding of the scriptures, much discernment, much grace is needed in all of these things. Well, they get nowhere with the church leaders, so they turn on the people. And they discourage the people, verses 4 and 5. The leaders aren't budging. They're not falling for it. Let's see if we get anywhere with all the rest of them. Exactly how it was done, precisely what was being said, we don't know. We're not told. But we can see what the aim is. The aim is to prevent them from building any distraction from keeping them from what their goal is. Anything we can do from keeping them from the, t- the primary task of building building. Make them question whether all the hassle we're giving them is really worth it. Make it costly to them to be a builder. Make it painful for them. Perhaps then they'll start to complain to their leaders. Can't we ease off a bit? Can't we back down a bit? Does it have to be like this? Many of you feel increasingly under pressure today. It's starting to get difficult to be a Christian, where once, actually, it was quite easy, isn't it? You can remember a time, many of you, when no one really questioned any of the things that Christians stood for. It's not like that now. Why must you believe that? Why so extreme? How can that be the view that comes from a God of love? Christianity is supposed to be about love. How can you hold views like this? How can you be so narrow minded? How can you be so intransigent? You're so intolerant of other people's beliefs and opinions. Some Christians have lost their jobs and find themselves in tribunals for taking a stand for the truth. And they are portrayed as being mean, nasty, bigoted, intolerant people. And it's meant to discourage the rest of you from being faithful. It's meant to discourage us, to stop us from building. To just feel it's just wearing us down. What's the point? It's It's designed to stop you from playing your part in the building of the church of Christ. Eventually, these Jews will stop. Will you? Will you? And it doesn't stop there because, thirdly, we find them appealing to the authorities. We're told it happened in the reign of Ahasuerus, although the details are not recorded in verse 6. But then from verse 7 we we get this really detailed account of what happened. An actual copy of the letter that was sent. Both from these people to the king and then from the king back to these people who were against the Jews. And we notice some things about the letter that's written. Well first of all they make some highly exaggerated claims as to who they represent in verses 9 and 10. They basically claim to represent most of the known world and to be speaking on their behalf. How often today do we hear minority groups being given a platform to speak as if they represent the views of everybody? Nothing new. It's nothing new. They flatter the king, verse 14. Well, they would do, wouldn't they? And it contains lies, verse 12. What's being rebuilt is not evil. The city of Jerusalem is not going to be an evil place. And the letter's full of half-truth and twisted logic and unfounded assumptions. And they, and they, they seek to frighten the king about this great loss of revenue that he's going to have. Let's tell him it's going to hit his <coughs> pocket. That'll do the job. And it does. Without taking sides on the issue, it's a bit like what's become known as Project Fear in the Brexit debate, isn't it? Those who wished to remain in the EU painting the blackest possible picture of doom and gloom if we leave. Well that's what they're doing here to the king. It's project fear. And the king falls for it. And the king assumes authority over God's people. Takes it upon himself to bring a halt to the building work. They get the king to legislate against the Jews well this is what we see today as the world tries to assume authority over the church you will change your view on marriage please won't you tell us what we may or not may or not believe tell us what we may or may not preach Laws are passed which are a direct assault on biblical truth. The nation as a whole is turned against its historical roots by the government being lobbied to legislate against long-held Christian values and to overturn centuries-old standards of morality. It's nothing new. Here it is in Ezra chapter 4. We'll get the king to pass a law. Many in the world would love to stop us from building the kingdom of God because they see it as a direct threat. Believe what you want, but shut up and sit in the corner and keep quiet. And hopefully, within a few generations, they'll all have gone away. That's what many think. When you read through the New Testament... You see all these same ploys being used. Number one target in the New Testament is Christ. Then his apostles and then the church. It's nothing new. It was all happening in Ezra's day. You see Satan cozying up to Jesus in the wilderness temptations. What's he trying to do there? He's actually trying to become a false ally with Christ. Let's work together on this, Satan says. Doesn't he? False fellowship is what Satan's trying to engineer with Christ in the wilderness. You see the twisted arguments of the scribes and the Pharisees as they try to portray Jesus as some devil rather than the Messiah. His works of mercy and compassion on the Sabbath day are seen as being a heinous transgression of the law. His arrest and his trial are littered with illegal maneuverings and false accusations as they get the authorities to pronounce judgment against him. Let's get them to legislate against this man. Let's get them to pass the death sentence on him. All the people being stirred up against him. The huge crowd shouting Hosanna a week earlier, now crying for him to be crucified. What this man is building must be stopped. They think they've dealt with Christ, but then they turn on the apostles. Initially, Peter especially is in the firing line. But all of the apostles are turned on. And then they turn on all of the believers, seeking to discourage them. Stephen is martyred. Saul of Tarsus is charging around Judea, rounding up all of these followers of the way. And many Christians are scattered far and wide. They must be stopped from building the church. They're not... This is the way of the world. The converted Paul would be targeted relentlessly. Stoned, flogged, beaten, eventually arrested and charged, dragged before Felix, Festus, Agrippa, before being taken to Rome to plead his case before Caesar. But in just a few months, his life would end. Didn't stop them from building the church, though, did it? Later, some of the Caesars of Rome, notably Nero, would take aim at the church. We see it all false fellowship, discouraged people, the authorities acting against God's church. It's a battle. It really is. It's a battle. And I guess there are often times today when you, like me, sometimes wonder how on earth the church will survive. Just occasionally, the thought crosses your mind perhaps, will the church survive? Will I survive? We get to verse 24 of Ezra chapter 4. Well, in their case, for more than 10 years, the building work stopped. Will we be found guilty of stopping building the church of Christ? What can make you any different from these beleaguered believers in Ezra's day? Now, there's an important question. Because all the attacks are the same, all the opposition is the same. Sin and Satan work in exactly the same way against the Lord's people. What can make you any different from these beleaguered believers in Ezra's day who gave up and stopped? How can you not give in to the opposition? How can you make sure that you don't stop building? Who amongst us is up to this? One. Just one. And it's the one who promises to be with you every time you meet in his name. He's up to it. The one who stood fast and held firm and who will hold you fast and enable you to stand firm. The one who is worth suffering for when you remember all that he suffered for you. The one who has promised that he will gather in all of his elect and he will build his church and the gates of hell are powerless to stop him. The one who's promised such a glorious eternity that even the worst that the world can throw at you is as a light affliction when compared with the glory that's to come. The opposition has always been fierce against true godliness and holiness. And the world recoils from the light because it loves the dark. And yet through the centuries, the gospel has continued to be proclaimed. And Christ has kept on building his church. That's the call for us under Christ our captain. It may yet get much harder. It may yet get much more difficult. But how can you remain firm and stand? The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labor on in weakness. And rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won. And I shall overcome. Yet, not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said he will lead me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold. My only hope is Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me.